Listener Production. This podcast was recorded on the ancient lands of the Gadigal peoples of the Eora Nation in Australia. I wish to acknowledge their rich and continuing culture and especially pay respect to the elders past, present and emerging and to acknowledge and pay respect to any First Nations people from anywhere in the world who may come to hear this podcast. We hope that we may all come to walk with gentle feet, strong minds and compassionate hearts in this global village. No dad wants to be a lousy dad. Aiming to be a good dad is great, but you know what? Being a good enough dad is so much more important. I'm Maggie Dent, parenting educator and author and champion of boys and men. And this is The Good Enough Dad, where I chat with committed, caring, sometimes confused and often funny dads about all the ways they've discovered to be good enough at this parenting gig. My good enough dad today is David Campbell. We're happy little Vegemites, bright as bright can be. We all enjoy our Vegemite for breakfast, lunch and tea. Now you may know David best as the co-host of Today Extra on Channel 9, but I couldn't resist playing that little bit of gold because David is also an incredible musical performer who has started musicals and cabarets. And crooning is something that appears to be a family pastime. If you peruse David's social videos, you'll see him singing duets with his wife, Lisa Hewitt, or maybe even a family medley of Silent Night with his three children, Leo, 12, and twins, Billy and Betty, aged eight. David, welcome to The Good Enough Dad. Now, I don't know why. (laughs) It's a thrill to be here, Maggie, but I don't know why you chose Happy Little Vegemite of the... Dozens of albums I've done, but that was where you that was where you went. And I have to correct you, my son is now 13. Oh, it's and if that's not on the record, we are in you and I are yeah, just we will never leave this room alive. I love it. So how does breakfast roll oh, yeah. on, on a normal morning? Uh, it's quite loud. Uh, for some reason, we've got wonderful neighbours. <laughs> and I turned to Lisa the other day and I said, why are they so nice next door? They've got kids the same age as us. And we're so loud. We're like the loudest family on the street because you're just... It must be genetic, but they're just really loud. You grew up until the age of 10 thinking your grandma was your mother and your mum was your sister. So do you remember what life was like um, before that kind of revelation? Oh, yeah, very much so. My grandmother was a war baby. Um, She raised four kids in, you know, sort of really below the poverty line in London and Tottenham. They were a Tottenham family. They came out as part of the 10-pound palm program. My dad came out through Glasgow and a lot of that's in his book, but also he talks about my mother in his book because they were good friends. They were high school mates. They weren't even sweethearts. But, you know, he was aroused about, you know, he was rock and rolling at the age of 15, 16. And so I was conceived like as just best mates rolling around at like 16 one night. And I think both families wanted to adopt me out, thinking that would be the right thing to do. And my maternal grandmother adopted me in. But she adopted me because she was adopted herself. So she adopted me as her her child. So she'd already had her last child would have been like 13, 14 years older than me. So she'd already gone through the whole thing and she was doing it all again. And she did it basically on a widow's pension. So she was quite, we were quite strict growing up before my dad sort of threw chaos at the world, um, in a good way, but she was very much 
She'd been through four kids and she wasn't messing about. But, you know, there's also a certain sense of tough love, but love. But also that became harder to deal with as I became a teenager. I think that she just couldn't be bothered going through a fifth teenager as a grandparent. And the struggle of then holding that lie down of like, you're my son, once it all came out, became a really traumatic time. So it was a very, uh, a very difficult time post that. Up to then, it was it was pretty it was pretty normal. Like I would read comic books. I you know watched as much you know Spike Milligan and the goodies as I could. And you know I had early to bed. I was a very emotional child though. I remember that. I, I did feel conscious that the person raising me was older than my friends' parents. So your siblings were siblings in inverted commas were older. Yeah. So. Did you hang out with the kids in the street? Did you have neighbourhood stuff that you remember? Well, a couple of mates I hung out with. I was very nerdy and I changed schools um, as in primary school quite early on. So I'd lost a lot of friends and had to start all over again. And, you know, there was a, it was really rough in the, in the 80s and 70s growing up in Adelaide. It was like a lot of like, I remember one of the things that stands out was like kids that like you're in a gang, whether you had a Holden jacket or a Ford jacket. <laughs> And, and this shows you how unsporty I am, Maggie, is that I decided these are the days of, uh, of Brocky and stuff like that. So I got an Alan Moffat Mazda jacket and I was the only kid in my school who was like, I'll start my own gang. This did not catch no, on. This work. was poo-pooed on by the bullies of my school. <laughs> so I didn't wear that jacket very often. But, you know, there were some nerds and I that sort of hung out and, you know, you sort of, it takes a while to find your tribe sometimes. Oh, yeah. So were there any father figures floating around anywhere? Any teachers, any, anybody else? No. Nope. So you're just completely raised by It was a matriarchy. Yeah. yeah. Great. And that's not all bad. Let's just No, no, I'm that. not. Yeah, yeah. Listen, look, if we look at society, it'd be a nice try, chance to try it. You also found out this is that big moment that, um, yeah, the lead singer of Cold Chisel, Jimmy Barnes, was your dad. Can you remember when that landed? Yes. Yeah, I bet, I bet you can remember it. <laughs> I've been... It's actually 40 years ago, the week that we're recording now. Wow. Because my dad was doing the last stand concerts around Australia for Cold Chisel, and they've just celebrated 40, the 40th anniversary yeah. of that. And he was doing the Sydney shows, but had uh, had a ruptured, or was bleeding from the throat. I mean, obviously, he's been bleeding from the throat his whole mm. career. But no, he had actually done some damage during these shows. And so I met him during a week break. They had to reschedule shows, obviously. And I came up and met him because Jane was like, had married him. And in no uncertain terms found out about me and went, why don't we have this child in our life? And so she was very instrumental. She's good egg. She's very instrumental in bringing me into the family. And my sister Mahalia was born then. She was like 12, 15 months old. And so I came up with my grandmother just to sort of, I think, still just being like friends of the family. I think she wanted the lay of the land to make sure that this wasn't going to be like yeah. a sex pistol sort of yes. scenario. Yeah. And of course she saw that there was a house, there was a farm, there was a family. This is going to be fine. So I found out when I got back from Adelaide from that trip about 40 years ago. So wow. wild. But see, the thing was, and the hard thing to sort of, the challenge that I've had as a parent is finding out that my mother was actually my sister and that my grandmother was not my mother. Two big, enormous Yeah. The, 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 the Jimmy Barnes thing affected me later in life career-wise, yeah. you know, and through his addictions and learning yep. about him. But the emotional foundational stuff that I still sort of have to sort of combat on a weekly basis, depending <laughs> when I speak to my mother, is what I sort of 
you know, sort of reckon with. Absolutely. It's huge. Yeah, it is really big and it's not uncommon. You know, there's a, a terrific podcast talking about like a lot of kids from that time, which is done by an amazing Australian. And uh, it's, it talks about like kids that were just born and taken away or yeah. born in that time. Yeah. So it's not uncommon. And I'm lucky that I was kept in the family. Yeah. yeah. But it does come with issues. Oh, yeah. I mean, we've all got them, but oh. that one's a particularly big one. So can you remember how it was being a tween and teen boy, you know, now that you're Jimmy Barnes's son? How was that? It was a struggle. I guess the term for nowadays, people call it code switching, you know. So I would be back in Adelaide at like this very much working class, you know, lower middle class high school. Not really wanting to tell my friends, but telling some friends at school. And so it would start to seep out bit by bit that my dad was coming to town or it's a, but not really telling a lot of people. And so I was struggling with that sort of fear and anonymity and not really having much to, at a home, you know, we were, you know, we did well week for week, but you know, it was a struggle that I didn't have to know about until much later on, but I realized now what a struggle it is. And then coming to my dad's place, it'd be like, you're flying to Thailand. You're doing this, you're doing that. So then I'd have all this whirlwind school holiday stuff maybe once or twice a year. And then I'd go back to Adelaide with nothing. And because they were touring and because there's no mobile phones, I may not hear from them for a couple of months. Yeah. And so that was a real push-me-pull-you thing about wanting a parent that wasn't there, having a, a parental figure that was there that wasn't my parent, and then my mother who struggled to have an identity in the middle of all that. So I was really combating all these three things. No therapy, it's the 80s, and not really knowing what that means and how to and how to process that. So that's something that, you know, as I had my own children, was very mindful of what boundaries were going to be and what was going to be in place and what was going to be labelled for these kids and the, what they could rely on. So I've worked a lot with, with teen boys and... When something big, like exactly what you've kind of got this sort of conflict in your life between those two worlds and the frustration of it, no one really making sense of it for you, often that meant they would bring those emotions out and act out in ways that probably wouldn't wouldn't necessarily be bringing a smile to people's faces. Did you act out or shut it all in? I was a people pleaser, so I was very okay. needy. Um, I think that was prior to finding out about my family. I, I, I just always was. I you think do realise that's mainly conditioned from females, so you might have got it from you. Right. Well, also my my grandmother, you know, bless her heart, she tried her best, but yep. she would be very withholding with emotion. Okay. So if you were in trouble, the tap was turned off and she got very cold. And that was because of how she was brought up. Yep. And there was a lot of details that are not for me to describe mm. about mm. her marriages and stuff, but that's, yep. that was her trauma. So, you know, and I know this now, but that's still... You can't explain that to a pre ten year old child or a fourteen year old boy. or a fourteen year old yeah. boy. As I grew older with that, and as I as I started to recede and sort of go inward, I found myself really struggling at school. Probably my undiagnosed ADHD was kicking in by that stage. My people pleasing was kicking in at that stage. Therefore, I was performing a lot more in class. I was getting in trouble, but also trying to charm teachers, yep. trying to be the popular kid, trying to be the class clown. So grades went out the window. But luckily for me, I had a couple of smart, incredibly astute and patient. God, they were patient teachers with me who were like, okay, you're not studying in music instrument, but you can come and do the choir. Just come hang with musicians. And, you know, an English teacher who was very much like, just 
just do monologues and keep reading stuff. And then a, a drama teacher was like, come and do school plays and musicals. And this is a public high school in Adelaide that was known for its agricultural <laughs> backgrounds. So it was great that those three teachers sort of triangulated me at certain times. Huge. Because I think I, it could have been a lot worse yeah. without they those three you. teachers. Yeah. So that's, that, and, and I had a really good core group of friends who I still talk to now yeah. who were the same. We call those lighthouse figures that when yeah. we've got them that are outside the family that just give us a sense of uh, hope or, uh, you know, that we're not all bad. Because my family was unreliable. Yeah. And, and, or I thought they were unreliable. Yeah. I'm so glad as a former teacher, that was one of my, I like to be the, the lighthouse figure for some of the Ratbag Boys. They really boys. do. They really do. I love them. Ratbag Boys love a good teacher. I know. <laughs> it's really important. It's an important relationship because oh. the Ratbag Boys are looking for a connection to somebody to be like, Am I making you happy? Yeah. Do I matter? Do I matter? Do you see me? Do you value yeah, me? Absolutely. And I love the ones that crack jokes and entertain the class clown. Guys, it was awful. If you're you welcome. Can I say you're welcome <laughs> on behalf of me and my people? <laughs> it was really dull without a class clown. You need Even them. though they'd say things like, oh, someone's got a stiffy miss or someone's <laughs> farted. Oh, love it. Did they? <laughs> Just to lighten the tone of, of an course. English lesson when you're doing ballads. So good. Timmy was pretty young when yeah. you discovered that he was your dad. He was on his late twenties. So how did how did kind of the father figure that's a rocker? How did that? How did he kind of connect with you as a father figure? I, I think he struggled. Yeah, and I think that's okay that he struggled. Totally. You know, I look back at it now and the and how close we are now. Yeah, knowing that I have more forgiveness because he tried. He did. <laughs> he tried really hard, and I think that it was an impossible task for a man in his. Early 30s to have a teenage child just stop on his doorstep. And a big career. Yeah, and a big career. I mean, he we're talking the heights. Yeah. You know, and as most Nepo babies will tell you, that's an impossible thing to sort of, yeah. you know, get attention from because that is just being pushed out all the time. And the demands of that, as I know now, are so super intense and super high. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we'll never see the likes of him and Farnham no, and that again. Never. So we'll never know that sort of intensity again. No. And, and it really was... You know, when I was coming from the quietest of suburban backgrounds and then just being thrown into the maelstrom <laughs> and then being like, why doesn't this kid behave? What's wrong with his skin? Uh, <laughs> you know, why is he behaving like this? Why is he moody? Yeah. And then I would, you know, I'd have some emotional breakdown and be like, okay, time to go home. And I'd be home like, they've rejected me. That's not, that's not exactly what happened mm-hmm. at all. But they were just doing their best because they had to get on with like, multiple children that they were having that yeah. needed them that were, you know, I was only I, at times I used to think that times I felt like a hassle, but really it was like, it was just like what they, I think they just were like, let's yeah. keep inviting him. It's going to be fine. He'll get through this. I think Jane was very sensible about just keep inviting him. Yeah. Don't let's not just reject him and not, you know, he, yeah. let's let him go, but just keep, keep dragging him back open. in, keep the door open, keep getting him back over here and I mean, I have such strong memories of those yes. times that are just yeah. wonderful, you yeah. know. And I remember, I was saying to Lisa the other day, I remember one time, you know how teenage boys get pent up? Oh, yeah. Sitting on my dad's bed in a hotel somewhere in Southeast Asia, it might have been Hong Kong or it might have been Thailand, and just not knowing where I was and not, <laughs> and just sobbing, sobbing with huge emotional tears not knowing why. And I, I remember this moment just the other day and I, and I, I was like, the hell was I crying over? But I needed to just get it out in front of them, like but not performing it, but just 
letting them know that, you know, I was there and I had these feelings and I couldn't control it. And I can only imagine that these, when I left and went to bed, they're like, this is a nightmare. <laughs> In actual what about, fact. What about boarding school? How about we get this kid out of here? They never said that. But, but look but, how uh, incredibly healthy that is that we now know because teenage boys are still being conditioned to shut it down and right. be stoic. You are actually safe enough to yeah. sob your heart out in front of these two people who every now and then were there were not. That's that's actually I did. I felt gift. trust and I felt safety for them to be able totally. to do that. So obviously something was unlocking yeah. that was deep. So even though he didn't get it all right, you knew he was absolutely trying Yeah, and he must have created a sense of safety or that those tears wouldn't have come out. It yeah. would have gone into some anger or rage or something instead, which so many boys today still end up being the only pathway to feeling sad or frightened. Or... Oh, you made me feel much better about that. I felt oh, really sorry for them. No, no. <laughs> it was a gift. It was a gift. You're right. They should thank me. I keep saying that. Parents are really hard to convince, though, when your kid's sobbing away or yelling at you. It's actually a gift because you're safe enough. That's true. It's, Especially that's the... dads. So, so often our dads feel really uncomfortable when the kids cry or get mm. upset because they were told to shut that down and keep it close. So... Let's let's hope that's the way we're moving, hey? I hope so. You have become really close with Jimmy. Yeah. Yeah. And um, those bonds, even though we're in amongst the chaos and the fact that you kept coming back, when did you really feel like, ah, oh, me and my dad, we've got this? Oh. Maybe when I was in New York was the first time I felt that. Um, and old, through no fault of their own. How old so would I'm, you be? What am I, 25, yep. 26, 27? Um, you also now got a prefrontal, so your brain's yeah. a bit better at seeing things more accurately. Yeah, you're right. And he, he'd flown over to see me at a show there, which was quite a significant show for me. And I, I just felt like, you know, he all of a sudden I felt like, Hey, he notices what I'm doing. And he knows that this is not just like me faffing around being an actor or doing musical theater. And he doesn't understand it. He was like, he'd engaged and he participated. Like he got up on stage that night oh, at this gig I did. Oh my God. Uh, in front of all these Americans. So, you know, he participated in my world. And that felt really amazing. So yeah, around that time we were connecting through music, believe it or not. That's, it's the sort of uh, vibrational connection that we had a lot of that, you know, I'm trying to now impart on my own kids. Mm. What is one thing you chose not to take forward from your dad as, as, as your father? Ooh. Well, only because, only because it's different. And so this is not a, actually a judgment call at all on his parenting. Mm -hmm. This is actually circumstance and it's actually a relief um, that my careers don't define my entire life. And he's just, unfortunately, not in that predicament. You know, you only, you can only have a few legends in a lifetime and he's one of them. It takes a village to make that go. And I felt like, even though this is not really relevant, I felt like sometimes emotionally in my, in my insecure teens that I was sacrificed to that. But I wasn't, it just wasn't any of my business. He was just a business. I'm so privileged to have the work I have because I can be with my kids. Yeah. I pick them up after school or I'm there at breakfast time. Yeah. And sometimes I have to go out of state and sometimes I'm doing a show and I'm doing that at the same yeah. time. And so there'd be months where it's like just a lot of work. But for the most part, I've got a lovely balance that 
these core years, which you'll never get back, I've got. But as I say, he he is the nation's (laughs) Jimmy Barnes. He's not just my dad. And he is a wonderful grandfather. Yeah. You know, they will never know that. Yeah. But they will have to know the words to flame trees. (laughs) (laughs) They will. And maybe some harmonies and maybe need to play it on an instrument because he always needs people in the band. I just think a lot of service to the country they did during COVID. Oh, my God. It was amazing. I mean, uh, I just, there were times I'd just go and check out the ladies. But we did too. I know. Every night we'd be like, okay, it's up. Yep. You know, and I, we were watching too. And so the kids so would good. watch as well. So they could so see good. like they could see their grandparents yeah. connecting, laughing. Singing. Singing, you know. And so with my kids, you know, you know, my son is you know, quite musical now. And as I said, you know, my kids are getting there too. But my older son is like quite musical. And sometimes he could be a bit like possessive over because he knows it's his thing. Yeah. I'm like, you don't understand. If you can sing with your family, not only is it the biggest privilege in the world and the greatest honour in the world, I said, you will never feel closer to them. And you don't have to form a band and tour the world. You don't have to be the Osmonds. That dates us. You don't have... It does. It does. Maybe the Jonases. (laughs) Let's be fashionable. You don't have to be that. But you can always, like, I sing more with my dad and my sister Mahalia than I do most people in my life. Yeah. And uh, it's just, we look at each other on stage and laugh and have these connections that it. no one knows. No. Like my, I'm singing with Mahalia this week. I sang with her two weeks ago. And I trust her to walk on stage at a heartbeat, look me in the eye and sing a love song duet with me and know how <laughs> awkward this is and know she's trying to crack me up. And also nail it. And nail it. <laughs> and I said to Leo, like, if you can have that, if you can, if you can grow that, if you can be the band leader to those other two, that you will always have each other and you'll always have each other's backs and you'll never harmonise better than you harmonise yeah. with a brother and sister. You will be in sync. Is there any particular part of Jimmy's parenting that that you would definitely have wanted to choose to use with your kids as well? Yeah, more and more I think about the sort of, um, you know, we talk about blue zones a lot and and the importance of, you know, these places like Okinawa or Sardinia and what keeps people living to a, an older age where they're cognizant, where they're aware, if they're lucky enough to have their full capabilities, do it. And one of the big things that I've noticed that I've really have latched onto in the last six months or so is this world of a community that is built with his kids. And I see a lot of like TikTok memes and things like that where parents read out like, Honey, when we're frustrated with our kids, remember that, you know, in five years' time, they'll never call us and blah, 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 and, and that, you know, we should cry about this. And he's never done that. He's actually, and it's not in an unhealthy way, but he, it's probably because of the Thai background of, you know, my stepmom, Jane. It's that sort of like family's family and family stays in and generational families live under the roof together. And that's really good and really healthy. Whereas we, in a sort of more white, British, Americanized culture, like, no, the kids have got to get out and they've got to get into the capitalist society of it all. But actually keeping them close and they can go away and come back and go away and come back, but speaking to them every day and talking to them and, you know, allowing them the space to come into you and to, and to be a part of your world. And Sunday dinners are Sunday dinners no matter where you are and how old you are. I actually think there's something to that yeah. because my brothers and sisters, you know, they may have their own little things here and there that they can talk about, but... They always come back and they all, they are really close. And we do holiday as a family. Yeah. And I, I sometimes think, is this unusual or is this something that has actually been welcomed by Jimmy and Jane? 
you know, there's a certain sense of privilege to it, to holiday together, but you don't always have to do it that way. But just to be around each other all the time and to be near each other is something that I would love my kids to have the trust and be able to do that still. I'm just singing my heart out here because, so I've got four sons and they're all daddies now and COVID locked half of us out because two families were in WA and we were over here. And when we got back together in a caravan park in New South Wales, it was just, what you're talking about there is watching all of these cousins and their dads who are really incredibly proud uncles and aunties. And there's just something you it just wouldn't have happened with random friends. Mm-hmm. And then as the kids went off to bed, out come all the stories, right? Yeah. When, when my mucked up, particularly, oh, yeah. they love taking the piss out of me um, <laughs> and my worst, you know, cooking disasters. And and there's this, like, as we walk off to bed, we have, I just feel you're filled with something that is incredibly special. Yeah. And it's because it's the kin family stuff. It is. So, and I think that you know, immigrant families do this really yes, well. Yes, Absolutely. They do it. They just do. You know, I've got a friend of mine whose whole family, he's been a friend of mine for decades now. He's my musical director. His family's Sicilian. It's every week they're at the, at the parents' place. The parents are gardening. The parents are making their own thing. All those things like, yeah, this is all the things we're now coming back to learning about now through Netflix or a book or whatever. But actually, they're just the tenements yeah. of like how we've evolved as a species and what works best. And sometimes the happiest kids are in third world countries with nothing. Yeah. Because they have that. Well, it's that not wanting yeah. anymore, you know, and, and teaching your kids to, you know, you can yearn for a better thing or, you know, be ambitious, but don't want for any more yep. things. Be happy with what you yeah. got. And that includes family. The most popular toy is a stick. David, you're dad to twins. I want you to give us an idea of how is that experience in those early years for you and Lisa. And do you have any advice (laughs) for any dads who suddenly get the double whammy or even more? Like, that's interesting. (laughs) It is interesting. It's remarkable. Any parent of a multiple, and I used to think, God, this is so hard, this is so hard, and then you bump into somebody who's got triplets, and I'm like, I take it all back. Um, It's, you know, the first 18 months or so or 12 months, depending on how you manage it and how you're – I guess how your tribe is to come in and help you is, is really essential. I remember there was a moment like 12 months into this where I turned around and I looked at my eldest son. I'm like, how long has this kid been watching TV? (laughs) (laughs) Is it eight months straight? I think it might be. We might need to just get back on track here a little bit, but survival. it's survival, you know, and that's the thing. It's, and it's about, I mean, I think I've learned so much about myself as a human through having twins, you know, about just being a parent. You know, it's, I have had for most of my life, which I haven't known, but I've been able to name in the last decade or so since becoming sober and stuff like that, like high anxiety and trauma and, um, you know, probable misdiagnosis of something and this and that. And so the kids, you know, I used to be really like fiery and alert and hypersensitive and really, um, you know, uh, victimized, like, oh, why is this always happening to me? God, this is, which I hear, I heard as a child as well from my family in Adelaide growing up. They, When you're growing up with people who don't have a lot of money, but who live with a lot of trauma, they do have, and they don't mean to, but they do have a victim personality. And it's very at the present. It's very much how they parent. Mm. And it's very much what they teach you. And so... Having twins and and learning how to let that go and to really like check yourself and really like, 
we are just going at it here. And my wife being so well grounded and therapied and emotionally intelligent has allowed me to, she, and she's never judged me on any of my stuff. She's really just like, it's going to be fine. <laughs> and that's allowed me to, to, my shoulders to drop and the calm to start. And so even in the freneticness, so, and we are, like I said to you at the very beginning of this, we are the loudest family on the street. There's a beautiful joy in that chaos that actually probably really appeals to me. And that sort of surrounded by family thing that's, you know, my kids are good. They don't really fight with each other too much, which really, you know, touch wood at the moment, really lucky, but they are very close, but they also just, they just do things all the time and they're just, it's madness. You know, you have more than, you get outnumbered as a parent, you're done. (laughs) Any parent out there, I'm like, if you have two, keep it at two. If you're going to more than that, they're outnumbering you and the car gets bigger and you're done. It's a democracy and they outvote you. Who sits in that seat? (laughs) Yeah, but it is really beautiful to have that chaos because when they're not around, when I'm in another state because I'm having to do a gig, I get immediately lonely. Like this strange... Stockholm syndrome that I'm like, I'll take it myself for a walk around the city with a podcast on because I just need company. And then I'm on the first flight back in the morning to get home because I just can't take it. Even though I'm so tired when I get back, then I probably need a nap. But if I lie on the couch near any one of my kids, and even if a foot's touching my foot, I'll drop off because I'm home and they're here and they're safe. I just need to know they're around. So you've just been describing beautifully the power of attachment. In a healthy way or not? No, no. In a, so our childhood kind of is how we start to shape who we are and everything. So when we're being parented by people who struggle with their own demons for whatever reasons, and their capacity to love fiercely and unconditionally is impacted. Mm. And often that means we don't feel safe with that person all the time. And that's yeah. what real attachment is. The research is so strong. The more securely attached we are, the healthier we end up, not only mentally and emotionally, but physically. So it's profound. You've just described that the fierce, unconditional love in your family, which is really strong attachment, which is why you have this noisy, chaotic house and anything can go on because you're all secure. But you can see why for you coming from your very unique and challenging background that you have to work through this. Thank God you got you got a winner there. Where... Yeah, and when I say it's chaos, they're not rude kids. Like Lisa no, no. was saying last night, Sing like, loudly. they're so lucky. We you play know? loudly. They behave really well and they've got great manners and they listen. And, but they're also, my wife is a wonderful, <laughs> like she moved here to Australia after meeting me, after us being together for three weeks. They've got a wonderful sense of gameness. Like, let's go for it. Should we go for it? Whereas I was always coming from a sense of fear and mine was always like yep. on the back foot battling. Like, okay, I've got to punch my way out of every situation, get yeah. myself out of this, and everything's going to be a battle because I've come from a battler's yeah. time. Yeah. Whereas, the, and so thankfully my kids have not, yeah. you know, I've, and for me as a parenthood has been about my own, and I don't want to drag it back yeah. to me, but it's about my own growth and learning how to parent the way ideally I would like to, not yep. the way Instagram tells me, yep. but how I want to, by talking to experts like you, by interviewing people, yeah. by listening, by doing therapy. Yep. By getting rid of my stuff, so I, I want, I think the responsibility for me as a dad is not just to like raise good kids, but actually raise good humans Yeah, because they're not my responsibility after 18 years yep. and they're going to vote. I want to make sure they vote the right way. <laughs> <laughs> so you do realize this whole journey is a big combat. Mother nature is that we have children so we can become better humans. It is actually the plan. Yeah. Oh, right. Good. But we didn't know it was 
part of the plan. That's right? certainly what's happening. And no, then we I get challenged, know. don't we? Because our story that we have from our childhood might not fit the story that's happening at this moment. Mm. And I can get really angry because right now you should be more respectful to me. Yeah. And and yet it's just a story I tell myself. And yeah. that's the beauty of when we go and explore it with therapy and shine a light on stories that aren't true anymore. Then we go, hang on, that's actually not their stuff. It's actually my stuff. And we become a better human. It is amazing. I was the most impatient human on earth until I had children. And now I'm incredibly, incredibly patient. I find myself apologizing to my kids a lot, not because I've behaved badly, but because I go, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said it that way. Yeah. I, or, or I acted this way, like if I like, okay, guys, just go to your room, whatever. You know, I have to come back and go, sorry, guys, I've had a bad day. That's not yeah. on you. That's on yeah. me. You know, and I find myself just explaining my emotions to them. And I'm like, I'll try to do that again. It's really healthy. It's yeah. called rupture, repair. Yeah. Your kids are going to learn to do exactly the same in their relationships down the track. Hang on, that wasn't said. No, that's not the parent I want to be. Not the human I want to be. Yeah. So I'm going to try to do that a little bit better next time. Excellent. Yeah, great. So we all muck up. We all make mistakes. I even left one of mine at the pool. Fortunately, he was a state swimmer, so he didn't drown. But, you know, I did fail and he reminds me often. So can you think of one of your memorable parenting fails, which will make all the dads listening feel like, yeah, okay, he's all right? Um, well, I was the first one to drop the child, uh, drop a child. So we know when you're yeah. that parent and not from a big height. <laughs> You know, <laughs> any height, any height, you know, and I was changing Leo. He was a baby. We were coming back from Fiji as like a, like a baby moon sort of thing. He was three months old and well, I just put him down to change his nappy. And Lisa was like in the lounge. She was relaxing. I'm like, this is good. This is good. I'll, I'll, I'll take him in. And I was changing him and I just turned to get a nappy and I just heard him like rustle. And as I turned around, he was mid-flight falling off this thing. And it wasn't a big height. It was like lounge lower than height. a l- yeah. lounge height. But it was like concrete. Oh. And so I sort of put my hand under his head and he sort of yeah. slapped my hand and that slapped the floor. And, of course, like babies do, they just start screaming. Yeah. And Lisa's drinking a champagne in the lounge. This is back when we used to drink. Yeah. And she was like, oh, somebody's having a bad time as a parent in the summer in this lounge. And it's not me. And she was like, I wonder what that is. And then she said, I came out sweating white as a sheet. And the baby had stopped yeah, crying by Yeah, it. yeah, Because babies. It was a fright. It was a fright, yeah, but yeah. the fright was for me. <laughs> She's like, are you okay? I said, that was us. That was us. Don't look at me. That was us. That was really traumatic. I just dropped yeah. the baby. I dropped the baby. Um, so it's those sort of things that I think are the big, yeah. like, epic fails. It's uh, – Yep. For me, I try and learn from my fails a lot. You know, if I ever... So you never dropped another one. I've tried not to. See? But it's See, it hard. worked, didn't it? It's really good. You know, you really <laughs> shove them into a Bjorns and you just keep them really tight. Um, I think the, the hard thing for me is is just learning about myself as a parent and, and forgiving myself as a parent and knowing that I'm enough for them, you know, and not comparing myself to other dads. I really... Because I didn't have a father figure growing up, I really, I think I struggled for the first few years of being a parent of just going like, I've got to be more and I've got to do more and I've got to, and I've got to please them. And it's like, actually, no, you don't. You just don't. You just need to be there and be enough for them. And a friend of mine who's one of my oldest friends and he lives in New York, he has two daughters. He's like, they just want to see you there. They want to look up from swimming and be like, oh, there he is. There's the face. There he is. Not looking at the phone. Yeah, not looking at the phone. You know, they want to see that you're like, you pick them up and that you're engaged. They want to see that you, you you wake them up in the morning. They want you to hold their hair back when they're vomiting. Those are the core memories they're going to have. As much as I want it to be Disneyland and they love Disneyland, 
it's probably going to be that time that you were there for me. And David, do you have any other parenting failure moment that you might like to share with us? I think that when you are grown up around people who do not have good boundaries and do not have great boundaries with what we know how you should behave around kids, alcohol was always really prevalent in my childhood. And so I was witness to really poor behaviors from a young age. I was witness to domestic violence at a young age. You know, I was witness to a lot of things. Not that I was a victim of it, but I saw it in Hmm. aunts and things like that. And it was always around and it was never, it never, looking back on it, it never felt healthy, but it always felt normalized. And so I drank from a very young age. And, you know, when you start to become a part of a music industry or a TV industry, one of the things you do is that you get free booze and it is prevalent and it is everywhere and it is fun until it's not. And when you do a gig and you go on tour with a band, you have free riders backstage where a venue will provide you with, here's all the booze in the world you want. Make a list of the booze and we'll get you that specific booze. The most iconic images of my dad is him holding up a bottle of vodka on a cold chisel tour. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, these images are burned not into my own psyche, but also I think a lot of Australian male men of my age. So as I was touring, it became more prevalent to me that I was drinking more to get more of a buzz because Ma was getting just better at it. And that would go from one or two nights a week to three or four nights a week. And then, you know, I got on TV and was doing the first year of doing the show and, um, you know, I was having a lot of fun and, you know, it wasn't out of control. But then one night we were going on a holiday that Leo would have been three and a half. We were going to Broome on holiday. We'd saved up to go to Broome. It was going to be our first proper holiday as a family. And Lisa and I decided just to watch a movie and have a few drinks that night. And I didn't even drink that much. And I, that's the thing that always struck me about this night. I don't know what it was comparatively to what I would usually drink. I had like four or five drinks maximum. And I woke up the next day and my body couldn't take it. And I knew it. That feeling when you know that you get the sweats and you're like, oh God, I'm going to go to the toilet right now and this is not going to be good. And Lisa's like, are you going to make it to the plane? What's wrong? And I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Um, And I was panicking. And as we were trying to, we only had one flight. There's only one flight to Broome. It's like, we'll get to the flight, get to the plane. I'm like, I'll get to the plane, I'll get to the plane. As we get, we're getting to the plane. I'm in the car, I've got the window down. I'm like, I've got out the taxi, I've got my head out the window, just trying to just like trying to calm this feeling down. And I heard Leo in the back saying, Dad's not well. And that was the moment that I thought, breathe, get through this, and then we'll 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 deal with this emotion that this has triggered, because it triggered something very visceral in me. Watching and witnessing older people in my life do this and knowing that they're not well. So we get to Broome. By that stage, I'd slept on the plane, woke up, felt better. We go to lunch. I looked at Lisa and I said, I'm out. I'm done. I'm done drinking. I said, I can't have a child that's part of my life, knowing that I've been brought up with on-the-record alcoholism and, and addictions issues in one part of my family and lots of alcohol and addiction issues on the other side and then that causing so much trauma. I, I can't sit here as a human and say that that's what I should continue doing. 
As a father, as especially. As a father. Mm-hmm. I, I can't do this. I don't want to do this. This can't be his memories of me is hungover. Um, or his, my best, his best memory is party dad. That can't be it. That can't be it. So I stopped. And I was lucky because I wasn't an addict addict that mm. I could just stop. And I realized saying that, that there's a privilege to the fact that there will be men and women out there that they will be like, I can't do that. Please find the way to do that. Go to AA, go find someone, go find a sponsor. Um, but I, luckily the one thing my grandmother had was an incredible willpower that she could stop things when she wanted to. And I have that mm. gene or that lesson in me. So I could just go, right, I will cut this off. Like I'm going to saw off my own arm. And it really meant a lot to me. And I wear it as a badge of honor. I don't mean to rub anyone's face right. in it. Sometimes people get really, excuse me, they get shitty with me about it. Like, oh, can't you even just have a champagne? It's like, no, bro, that's not how this works. <laughs> I'm happier without it. And I've never been, and anyone who gets sober says to you, I've never felt better. Anyone who gets sober says to you, I've never felt happier. And sometimes it brings up stuff. And sometimes the stuff that you've been drinking away, all of a sudden comes in, you're going to have to deal with it and go to therapy on it or speak to somebody on it, however you deal with it. But for me, it's been wonderful. It's allowed you to be the dad you want to be. Well, it's just allowed a, a major thing to be out of my way. So I don't have to deal with that too. And then once you have twins, you do not want to have a hangover. <laughs> you do not want to hang a, have a hangover with twins. Doubly bad. They are a hangover. <laughs> <laughs> we all worry as parents for our kids, but if you could pin what your biggest fear is for your kids in today's world, what might that be? It's a lot. I think parents today have to deal with a lot because we're all consciously parenting, whether we know it or not. I worry about sextortion. I worry about porn. I worry about having a daughter and having something happen to her. I worry about my sons not behaving well with a woman and me not doing my job and teaching them about feminism and what it means to have body autonomy and consent. I worry about whether I have told them I love them enough in case anything happens to me. I worry about the climate. I worry about the state of our politics. I worry about democracy. I worry about people who have been raised by people like I was who didn't care about what how you voted and how important voting is and how important voting for the right thing is, not just voting for your back pocket, but for the person underneath you who doesn't have enough back pocket, that dragging people up with your vote is more important than your second or third mortgage. I am so conscious of their privilege. I'm so conscious of their legacy that's handed down from their grandfather through to me and how they deal with being double Mm. Nepo baby, (laughs) Nepo baby squares. So I am constantly spinning a lot of maybe too many plates in my head about things that might go wrong because of my, my triggers are spiraling and fatalistic because of my background. So I tend to go there a lot and that's why I try to just try to keep it positive. That's why I'm very conscious of like now I've got a teenage boy about like having to sit him down (laughs) his face when I have to sit him down like. 
hey, let's have a talk today. He goes, oh God, what's it going to be now? And I'm like, have you ever heard of sextortion, son? And he's like, no. I'm like, good, let's talk all about it. I just did a segment on it on Today Extra. <laughs> and he's like, God, what is happening? I'm like, look me in the eye. No, this don't do the eye stuff, remember? No, that's right, no. Yeah, side to side. Side to side in yeah. the car. No, yeah. oh, he's good. He'll sit no, down no, and talk no. to me. But the eyeball stuff, really. Yeah, that's yeah, a female yeah, yeah. thing. No, that's true. Yeah. So that's that's <clears> kind of, those are that's my first list. How's that? No, but look at your awareness. Because you're aware of those concerns, you're already addressing them. You and Lisa will be addressing them. Yeah, totally. You'll be having lots of conversations. One of my challenges is how parents want to avoid awkward conversations about exactly some of the things you've spoken about. Yeah. How we've had, um, you know, the access to porn for children is so easy, which unfortunately shapes the way they see the rest of the world. Yeah. And the figures for exactly what you're talking about. The sextortion figures are incredibly For young high, boys, it's, it's and it's ninety-five percent of our boys in that twelve to fifteen age group because they're just—they're not good at making good decisions. They're easily manipulated, but if you've not had a conversation, they are so much more easily manipulated. Yeah. And it needs all of us to step up, not just our, you know, dads will often go, oh, go talk to your mother. No, not now. We need both of you talking, and yeah. we need you to have the same conversation so that they can be aware. I just, I got to say, you know, we've been lucky so far that, uh, my son doesn't have a phone. He has a computer or a laptop or whatever he has, and he can walk to school. He doesn't have to catch a bus. He catches the bus once a week for one of his sports things. And I'm like, you've got to watch and you've got headphones. You're fine. Um, so I've really, really been strict on that. And that is through talking to people like you. That is through talking to other experts on the shows like this, these phones. And I know from my own thing, I've been addicted to the phone. We all went through the pandemic. We all doom scrolled. I was on that damn thing way too much. <laughs> and it was really a, a big lesson for me. And also like, this is not good for young minds. And so, you know, I have kicked that can as hard as I can down the road. And I hope to do the same with the twins too, but it really is so important to get in front of the screens and to be in front of them, like waving your hands going, no, 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 mm. let's talk. And, you know, I said to my son with the hard, com ugly conversations when <laughs> we sit down with, if my wife and I did the sex yeah. talk or the yeah. consent talk, or I did the sex torsion yeah. talk, I, I said to him from time and time again, I said to him every couple of months, like, I will drag you through teenagehood. <laughs> I will drag you through. This is going to be so awkward and I'm going to talk you through it. And you're going to be at times, like, Dad, please, I'm begging you to shut down and stop it. But I will keep holding on to you to get you through this because I just know how bad it's going to be. I've been there. Yeah. I know what it's like. I said, and we'll talk about all the good things and the bad things and there'll be positives to some of this stuff. I don't think, you know, porn for mm. boys necessarily mm. is terrible if you explain it, you know, but... I will drag you through this with me. I'm not going to be too prescriptive, but I'm going to be, I'm going to hold on to you to get you through it because I'm, I'm scared. I'm like most dads, I'm scared. So there's one thing in that. If you hold too tight, then he will have to rebel against you. Sure, that's you. So fine. How about change the metaphor to, I'm going to be the rails on the bridge for you. Oh yeah. So you don't fall off the edge. I guess Got I it? Think that, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, Metaphorically that. drag you through. That's not bringing me the, I don't know there's any. Well, I think I said that just to sort of give it a sense <laughs> yes, of. Yes, I'm not letting go of my role yeah, in this. I think there's a, a sense of, I guess, uh, yeah. Yep. a masculinity. I'm not yeah. very mask. So that's <laughs> one of my masculinity sort of verbalizing. Yeah. No, no, seriously. It's a, but I'm going to be with you all the time. I've always got your back. And yeah, I think that's, that's true. The, yeah, that's That's good. the message, you know, so many kids have told me in therapy is um, I don't want to call dad because he will really lose his shit. 
Um, I want them all to say, I know I can call my dad. Yeah. And if, after he's lost his shit, he'll help me. Oh, yeah. But that's what we want from our Yeah, dad. because dads are going to lose their shit. And yeah. they're allowed to. They're supposed to. Because yep. you're going to do some dumb stuff. Yeah. As, as we've already figured out. Okay, so here's your big moment. What do you reckon is your biggest parenting win that you can, oh, look, I nailed that. You've done, you've covered some of them, but is there one other thing that you've done particularly well? At the moment, I think of my son yesterday said something in front of a, a group of people who was disparaging at a karate tournament. My kids do karate. And the, the twins were breaking boards. And he was like, uh, I bet you those boards are just like not even real wood. Walked away. He came back five minutes later to the group of people who was joining. He's like, sorry, guys, I was really hungry. I just had some pizza. Not true. Those are real wooden boards. Oh, man. You know, and the fact huge. that he is at 13, 13, still able to be self, oh. like he'll come up, he'll be the first one to come up to us after he's been moody. And I'll be like, go away and fix your face and tell me what you think about this. <laughs> and he'll come back and goes, Sorry, I was a dick dad. And I'm like, absolutely no problem. Yeah. You're going to be a dick. It's totally fine. Um, you know, and I think mm. at the moment, I mean, the twins are great because they're just in that eight-year-old, nine-year-old. It's, it's all exciting. Yeah. But have a, a boy who's, there's hormones mm. happening. Mm. Um, there is height happening. But for him to be able to absolutely check his emotions wow. and to come back and go, and all my kids are very good at this, but they'll come up like, I don't like the, like my younger son. Sometimes you'll tell him, I'll be like, I actually don't like the way you're talking to me like that. And I'll be like, granted, but I don't care. Yeah, right now. But thank you for, thank you for saying that. Thank I hear you. Thank you. Feedback. Thank you. I, I will, I'll check that next time. But this, we're going to just come back around now. <laughs> I think you're very good debating at this, but we're just going to come back around now to this. But the fact that both of my boys are very yeah. good at talking about their emotions mm -hmm. is something that I think my wife's very good at, but I've tried to, in my parenting style too, like feed into that, like apologizing yeah. when I've needed to yeah. apologize or saying, this is why I'm going to do this now, or this is why I need you to do this. Yeah. And sometimes it's about like, no, this, you're doing this yeah. now. Sometimes they'll just be the straight, like, no, I just do it. Yep. That's and sometimes, and then sometimes it's like, Hey, can you just, I need you just to do this for me. Yep. And then sometimes I'm apologizing for, yep. you yep. know, that. And so, that's all those three are completely valid. Yeah. You know, I think it's sometimes we think, am I going to say that? No, that is it. We're not doing it. That's the end. Put it down. And people go, oh, would that upset our attachment? No, I need you to know you are the parent. Yeah, you've got to be and tough sometimes. If all you're doing is that, then it might be if problematic. I'm, just catching, I'm like, they will have, my kids are major debaters. If I'm too softly, <laughs> softly with my parenting, it'll take me days to leave the house. Just mm. to be like, look, just get dressed, yeah. get off the toilet, put the book down. No screens right now. I've got to go. Over to your mother. <laughs> I love it. All right, can okay, I going to ask a big question? Go this, on then. These haven't been big because <laughs> no, I felt like just, this is... I'm, I'm working up to the two biggest ones. <laughs> okay. So you ready, David? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay, so you're only allowed to choose one thing. Oh. What is the one thing that you want your kids to have learnt from you as their dad? You can always change. I like you can grow. You're not stuck. You're not stuck. That's Life is amazing. Just grow with it. <laughs> and that's the thing that I want them to know. Yeah. When you were born, I was this way. You taught me all these things. Look at me. I've changed. Love it. And the final question, if you could wind back the clock to just before you had Leo yeah. and you could give advice to David before he became a dad, yeah. what is your number one piece of advice you would give to yourself before you became a dad? Take your wife to Europe. Don't be an idiot. <laughs> 
Stop working so bloody hard. Go to Europe while everyone else is going to Europe and just have a nice time without kids where it's cheap, you idiot. We've never been. And now, like, there's five of us. We're not going. And I look at Instagram. I'm like, mm, don't care. We're not going. I like that. Yeah. So, and other than that. Other than that, I would have said sober up. I probably would have yeah. said sober up much, much sooner. Much because, sooner. you know, we've had it, Lisa and I had a great time and we had many, most nights were really good drinking. And, and But, you know, you do have bad nights where you just yeah. go, what did we fight over and why does my tongue yeah. feel like this? And why am I eating this hamburger? Yeah. So I would have said sober up and, and and travel more without the kids. But also we were working. We traveled the country. I went to, you know, I took my wife who'd never been to this country before from Air all the way down to Shepparton to Lonnie. We went to, you know, you know, Rockhampton. We, we saw this country. We've been to Alice Springs. We've been to Ayers Rock. You know, we've done it all. And so, you know, that was also good too, that we did tour this country without kids. I love it. David, thank you. Is that it? Time. Yep. How much do I charge for this therapy? <laughs> David Campbell, co-host of Today Extra on Channel 9. David has certainly had a very unique childhood and yet he's taken from that difficult journey some lessons that he's learned and he's shared some pretty profound wisdom. And let's add to the good enough dad checklist from that. Firstly... You can be the dad you want to be, regardless of your childhood or the complete absence of a dad. So you can watch dads that you respect. You can read books. You can, you know, listen to fantastic podcasts like this. And yes, you can do therapy and explore the stories that you keep telling yourself that are no longer true. Secondly, it was great to hear David being emotionally honest and how we we know that being emotionally honest and showing all our emotions as parents, particularly as dads who were conditioned not to show vulnerable feelings, how important it is for our kids and to be able to talk about feelings. And then thirdly, remember that prioritising family time, with, especially with extended family members, aunts and uncles and grandparents and things, so that you can just hang out together, share stories together play together, sing together if you can sing, and just laugh together because those things really matter. I'm Maggie Dent, and this is The Good Enough Dad. Follow us on the Listener app or wherever you get your podcasts.